This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery, formerly Aloe Recovery. Created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob, their mission to create a treatment that treats alcoholics and drug addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has multiple decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental illness as well as drug addiction and alcoholism they can even handle the dread smi kicking at oro is supposed to be as comfortable as kicking can be which is critical when you're kicking anything of course heroin or alcohol or meth or whatever and their amenities i hear are incredible sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. So if you're fucked and you're willing to get help and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly suggest going to Oro. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting, a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, your payroll, and almost any other business need you have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. And perhaps more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now, and he knows the struggle as well as the success. Use promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. Honestly, if you need an accounting firm, go to Evolution Accounting. It's www.evolution-accounting.com. They will take good care of you. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Knocking Doors Down, a podcast with the mission to end the stigma around addiction and mental health with humorous, honest, and vulnerable conversations featuring guest celebrities, experts, and everyday people. Celebrity guests sharing their stories of addiction and mental health issues include Charlie Sheen, Bam Margera, Kelly Osbourne, AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys, Cheryl Burke from Dancing with the Stars, Denise Richards, Gary Busey, Butch Patrick from the Monsters, and me, Dave from Dopey. You can check them out where all of the podcasts are available. It's hosted by Jason, who's in recovery for addiction, childhood trauma, sexual trauma, and the family lineage of addiction. It's co-hosted by Mikey, who struggles with substance abuse and mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. 
It is again available wherever podcasts are, and the videos are available at kddpodcast.com. Please check them out. Okay, everybody, we've got a new sponsor. We're super excited to announce that the Zencaster podcasting platform has become a new sponsor of the Old Dopey Show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we are falling in love with using Zen for our podcast. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave, and I'm so excited. We have, an, we have a really amazing show for you today with this incredibly prolific and brilliant documentary filmmaker, Aaron Lee Carr, not to be confused with Ask Aaron Carr. Two different cars, both named Aaron, who spell the name Carr differently. Both writers, this Aaron Lee Carr is a hardcore documentary filmmaker who just made a smash documentary film on Netflix. Maybe you've seen it. It's called Britney versus Spears. It's all about Christina Aguilera. No, I'm just kidding. It's all about Britney Spears. I actually went to Brooklyn. I went to Williamsburg to sit down with this wonderful alcoholic in recovery. But before. We get to Aaron Lee Carr. I want to talk a little bit about something that I don't know if any of you guys have been to treatment. I'm sure a bunch of you guys have been to treatment. I know I've been to treatment. And uh, and one of my favorite things in treatment was when they bust out weird kind of ideas at you that put you in your place. And one of the best ones was King Baby. And I'm obsessed with King Baby because I'm a big baby and I'm, I am King Baby. So that's probably why I'm obsessed with King Baby. I'm also obsessed with King Baby because there's a graffiti artist on the Lower East Side of Manhattan who calls him or herself King Baby. I have a feeling it's a woman for some reason. And like he or she has like labels and they put a crown and they write King baby and I want to steal it for dopey merch. I'm trying to figure out how to get in touch with them. I think King baby could be the biggest dopey merch in the history of dopey merch, but I don't know if you guys know anything about King baby. I'm going to read you some characteristics from the King baby packet. King babies often become very angry or afraid of authority figures and will attempt to work them against each other in order to get their own way. Sometimes people call that mommy daddying. You ever heard that? There's a guy at my job when I used to wait tables who would tell me to stop mommy daddying the managers, which really fucking annoyed the shit out of me. Two, they seek approval and frequently lose their own identities in the process. I'm like staring into a, a horribly deranged mirror. Three, oh, this is totally me, are able to make a good first impression, and a good first impression, but are unable to follow through. Ay, ay, ay. Four, have difficulty accepting personal criticism. Oh, this one is, this is my biggest king baby. Have difficulty accepting personal criticism and become threatened and angry when criticized. All right, we're going to leave it there for now, for King Baby. We're going to return to the King Baby world. I want to ask you guys in the Dopey Nation, do you feel like a king or queen baby? 
If so, send a voicemail, send an email. Give me a good king or queen baby moment. And remember, you can get free Dopey Socks if you send in an email that is read or a voicemail that is played. Speaking of Dopey merch, there is a new piece of Dopey merch. We're calling it Smells Like Teen Dopey which is kind of a Nirvana dopey mashup without Nirvana really being involved. So it's kind of like a Nirvana dopey thievery piece, but it's pretty fiery. It is available now for limited time, limited time on the store. We have tons of cool dopey merch. We are in an amazing partnership with a company called SRO Prince. They are in Cincinnati, Ohio. They are a bunch of junkies and they make our beautiful clothing. Check us out at dopeypodcast.com and buy some shit. Also, I have so many fucking pairs of dopey socks. If you're dying to get a pair of dopey socks, please Venmo me and I'll send you one. It makes the perfect Christmas gift. Also, Dopey Patreon is on fire of late. I'm about to start releasing the Lost Shuffle tapes. I've digitized nine classic episodes of Shuffle where I am pretty much full-blown heroin using. I'm totally wasted. So if you're dying to see that, it'll be in the $10 Patreon world. I think I'm going to post something next week. So check that out. And if you want to just join the regular shit, there's so much good stuff on Patreon. And I wouldn't just say that. We just had an interview with this comedian, Mark Lundholm. We did the whole Chopped and Screwed series, tons of music, tons of interviews, tons of videos. It's just a ton of stuff on there. All right, so if you're a fan of Dopey, you know me, and you know that I'm obsessed with making Dopey. And if you know Dopey, you know we've had our fair share of issues with our audio quality, which is why we are so excited to begin a partnership with Zencaster. They are a superior podcasting platform with crystal clear audio and video. So if you want to make a podcast or you're a podcaster already, I suggest trying Zencaster. Go to Zencaster.com. Use the promo code DOPEYPODCAST without a space. It's D-O-P-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And save a whopping 30% off. 30% off. Check it out. So yeah, I'm excited about the Zencaster thing. I'm also excited about Dopey YouTube. Are you guys on, are you subscribed to Dopey YouTube? I'm throwing so many things at you to subscribe to. But Dopey YouTube is free. We do Good Morning Dopey. And if you've watched Good Morning Dopey, even if you hate the Daily Reflections, the Good Morning Dopey theme song is totally worth the price of admission, which is free. Just go subscribe to the YouTube channel. I just put out the newest fucking, I don't know if I told you guys about this, but I'm going to taste and review every Ben and Jerry's flavor this year. And then I'm going to make a pilgrimage to Burlington, Vermont, where I will force the corporate culture at Ben and Jerry's to create a dopey flavor and donate a big portion of the money to addiction and recovery. And it's all starting right now on YouTube. We reviewed uh, The Tonight Dough on Dopey YouTube. So check that out. And then I also like I've been working on this Katz's YouTube thing where we're trying to like do videos for Katz's and uh, I figured I just had the greatest voice so I should do the recordings and we recorded two episodes. My dad is on one of them. We're going to release them in January so I'll let you know when those start coming out. But my boss was like, I like it, but I don't like your voice. Your voice is too nasally. I don't want, I think he doesn't want the, the voice of Dopey associated with Katz's, which, which hurts me. It fucks me up. It, it brings up the king baby in me. 
And if I want to refer back to the King Baby list to see where this makes sense, it's that King Baby sees everything as a catastrophe. In this case, a cat's catastrophe, a life and death situation. And when I'm going through things like this, I realize that maybe I need help from something like BetterHelp.com. And you should know that Dopey Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You check them out at BetterHelp.com slash Dopey Podcast because life is full of stressors. You know, there's a lot of king babies out there. doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Your life is probably stressful. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast, Dopey, is sponsored by BetterHelp. And Dopey Nation listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash DopeyPodcast. So that's it for Dopey Business. Now we get to the business of the great Dopey interview. And I was so psyched because I never go anywhere to interview anybody. And I... I was so excited to travel to the wilds of Williamsburg to interview this incredibly hardcore documentarian, Erin Lee Carr, who's also an author. And we have been trying to get her on the show for years. My friend Aurora was, was like, you got to get Erin Lee Carr on the show. Linda watches her docs. I cannot tell you how excited I was to talk to her. So I won't even try. Here she is, the great Erin Lee Carr. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And it's very shocking and unusual because I'm in Brooklyn in a luxury apartment on the fucking 43rd floor overlooking Brooklyn with one of the most prolific and brilliant artists I've ever had on the show. Her name is Erin Lee Carr, not to be confused with the also brilliant Erin Carr. Welcome to Dopey. You just stole my joke. I was going to say I'm Aaron Carr number two, man. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I just want, I don't want to confuse <laughs> the audience. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, th and thank you for having us in your place. We've got Wednesday Adams with a big pair of scissors, right? It's a real, it's a beautiful studio in a really cool building. And uh, I don't want to waste your time and say, when did you get into this building? I should have asked that when I came in. That would have been a good normal question to ask. Instead, Aaron gave me a shot of ginger and turmeric, which is like fire. It's like liquid fire. Hell yeah. And um, the first thing I want to say, is it annoying when people talk about your dad at all? I think when he was alive, not to spoil the plot, it was but very, you know, it's, it's, it was very hard because it always felt like I was somebody's daughter. But now that he has since passed, I feel like, it's one of my main jobs in the universe to keep his name out there, people talking about him, his you know memory being there. So right now, it you know at this juncture in my life, it feels uh, comforting, and I feel like proud of it. Well, Aaron Lee Carr's dad was a guy called David Carr, who was a writer for the New York Times, and he wrote a book called The Night of the Gun. And someone gave me that book, and I kicked dope to Night of the Gun like three times. 
So like his voice was was in my head and the way he dealt with memory, I think about every day. And I think what you do is so connected to what he does um, just in terms of storytelling and unearthing things that it's just, it's miraculous that I get to sit here with you. So we'll just start there. And if anybody doesn't know anything about Erin Lee Carr, I wanna, wanna go down a list of things. She wrote a beautiful book called All That You Leave Behind, which is a memoir. She wrote, she did these movies. I don't know if you know about this movie that's out right now, this gigantic, ridiculously big movie called Britney versus Spears, Thought Crimes, The Case of the Cannibal Cop, Mommy Dead and Dearest. I, I Last night I watched I Love You Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. Got me nice and nuzzled in my bed. Uh, at the Heart of Gold Inside the USA, Gymnastic Scandal, and of course, the dopey favorite, How to Fix a Drug Scandal. So you're, you're ridiculously prolific in the, in the relatively short time you've been sober. I mean, how do you do it? I have not made a film without being sober. I actually relapsed in 2015 while I, after I was done making thought crimes and I couldn't make anything. And uh, so it's basically I've made a film each year I've been alive because I need to channel my alcoholic intensity somewhere. And this is where it goes while still respecting the program and sobriety. But I think a common theme you'll see is like, it's through, it's about abuse or addiction or being misunderstood. And I try to carry the experiences of myself and others into the work. And I find it really therapeutic. Totally. Totally. And, um, I think it's interesting when your father is such a public sober person and addiction is so built in to his identity. Like when you start drinking, I know he was kind of like chilling and he's like, I want you to do whatever you want. In the back of your head, where were you at with, oh shit, my, and your mother's an addict too. So where, where are you thinking as you drink more? One of the things I was thinking about in preparation for this interview is I, I listen or read Night of the Gun every year. And so I just got to the part where my dad is describing going to the crack house and leaving my twin sister and I in a car and almost and us almost freezing to death. And in the snowsuits. In the snowsuits. The snowsuit scene. Um, and it's so weird to think of myself as the little baby in that snowsuit and how many times like my parents were full-blown crack addicts, should not have had children. One, should never existed. Two, there were multiple times like in utero or being born, I should not have survived. I was two and a half pounds. And uh, then to be left at, uh, in a car outside. And as winter comes, I'm always like, I fucking hate the winter, I can't do it. I hate being cold. And I've always wondered if it had something to do with that. The trauma maybe yeah. of, of the two and a half year old. And just, just, I mean, also just living in Minnesota, but so it's, it's kind of, it's so weird. It almost feels like a different reality. Um, but the fact that people believed in that story and that it could get better and that sobriety could bring like the dream, the things that dreams are made of and that we get to sit here and I can pay rent on this place and not worry about it. And I feel my dad every day, I, I have his book, um, you know, I, I look at it for certain sort of signals or sentences. I mean, I think it is, I'm really biased, but one of the most incredible books ever. And the way that he talks, the language that he used, the fun that he has, like it is sort of dopey, the podcast, right? It's like the dumb shit, but also like getting on a plane and like doing coke. And you know, what I saw this time that I just read, it was like, oh my God, he had so much fun. 
until well, it was he horrible. Was, he was a dream dopey guest. And, but the thing about it is like when I retrace my own life, because I'm trying to cobble together some shit, I can't remember anything. And all I think about is the way he sourced out his memories. And when you, when you were writing your book, did you find that you had to trace through other people? Did you have your father's technique in your head? Like, maybe I should ask my sister how she experienced this. Or maybe I should ask um, my ex, I guess the ex-boyfriend scene. That was very similar. But like, how often? I did it just to torture him. No. Well, good. Uh, we deserve it. I feel bad for that guy. Uh, you know, that book is <laughs> such a profound uh, part of literature that I couldn't follow it, right? I couldn't, I couldn't, um, none of the language could feel similar. Yes, there was addiction in my book, but it was also about grief. And so it was a very intense, like, movement to stay away from that book um, and how it was written. And I think that what it's the inverse sort of because I have these emails and they're from these products in time. There's no guesswork. It's just, this is what he said then. And the real reason for writing the book was I just, those emails were incredible and they profound. Really and I just, I remember reading it to my friend Rana on the night of his death, the, the birthday email. That's my favorite. Um, you know, and I think, it just, I was reading out loud and I was like, I can't be the only one that hears this. And some, you know, some of it has always felt like, oh, I read a memoir, please buy it. Don't ask me for a free copy. Um, but it's like at other times I'm like, oh, I actually did that versus just saying it. What do you mean? I've always like, I'm really proud of the movies because they're an outgrowth of my brain. But the, the book always, like, I remember this review that said, you know, David Carr should be the co-author because he really wrote this. And people are such fucking dicks. It's like, I, I don't even, you get, it's like I've interviewed a lot of people, right, who are offspring of legendary celebrity types, right? And you're one of those people, but the shit that you fucking make, like, you should be taken out of that. You know what I, I mean? Hope. It's like, it doesn't, it's like, and the fact, I mean, the best thing about that book for me as a father of two girls is like, oh my God, the relationship that you have with your dad and that he had with you and the mutual respect and like the brutality built in. <laughs> I mean, the thing that like spoke to me, like there were so many little things that spoke to me. The first thing that pops into my head and I couldn't stop talking about it is when you guys are on vacation and like you're complaining, which remind, and, and it's like, I'm kind of like this with my older, my older daughter, you're complaining and he's fucking annoyed with you. And he says, it's like looking in a dirty mirror, Aaron, <laughs> shut up. And he spits out the window. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, cause that's like what I do. And, but still I, there's a positive to it because he respected you and he saw himself in you and he saw you in him. And that was the other thing in the emails. When he says he adores you, he also says how much he needed to lean on you. Mm -hmm. And like, that's brilliant. But I want to know about you. I want to know when did you, when did the drinking start? Tell the dopey nation a little bit about your dopiness, your dopey story. Uh, you know, I was Catholic schoolgirl, not introduced to alcohol at ever. Um, you know, I, basically knew that my family had this weird origin story that involved drugs and alcohol. Uh, so I, I saw it as something that was really foreign to me. There wasn't really alcohol in the house. And then in high school, when you're up to hijinks and it's time to start doing something, I remember my friend Jenny, she had her dad had a, a bottle of citron vodka 
and we all took turns in the very sort of Americana girlhood, taking turns swigging out of the vodka bottle. And instead of having fun and just doing, getting the, the right, just taking drinks like a normal person, when they went to bed, I went into the, uh, the other room and put the bottle to my mouth and drank almost all of it. And I threw up all over the basement and uh, I didn't know that I drank it because I filled it up with water and it was like, and they're like, well, how did you get so sick? Didn't you drink what I drank? I was like, oh, you know, I haven't drank before. And it was so, I just have that one memory of being like, I need more, do it. This like that gremlin, that little gremlin that's like, you need more, get more. Um, no one's gonna, no one's gonna care. No one's gonna see it, da, da, da. So that was a first clue that our, my relationship with alcohol was gonna be toxic. When? And I remember that story when, when though it's like, I've interviewed a lot of kids of, of drug addicts too. And it's like, I interviewed uh, Gilbert Trejo, who's Danny Trejo's son. And he said, I think the first time he used, he was 10 and he thought it was a slip because he had been around the drug culture and the recovery culture so much. So how much of the recovery culture pervaded your thoughts when you're a teenager and you're, you're just drinking or you're getting high for the first couple of times? I don't want to sound like an idiot, but it didn't factor in at all. Okay. And it really was, my parents were flu, full, my parents were full blown crack addicts. So it was never like, I thought we could, I could be anything like that. And so I've wondered about this. Like, how can I come from such a intensely addicted family and then not give any sort of critical thought to it? And I'm like a sensation seeker. I seek blankets and warmth and food and cookies and it just made me feel warm and so it was a natural outgrowth of wanting to to feel good and warm and it just made sense to me and then when I introduced cocaine to it I like you know I think I say it felt like my DNA was connected like finally it was who I was supposed to be and it's probably because I was a crack baby <laughs> but is that why you say it because it's like it's a classic drug like I know that when I not really. I mean, I, I love weed, but when I did heroin and I did benzos, I was like, this is me. When I have this in me, I am me. And like when I heard you say, I think the line that I remember hearing was cocaine was the missing piece of your DNA. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even connect the fact that you were born addicted. So like, was it when you first did cocaine, was it like, holy shit, here I am. And then in the back of your head was, uh oh, I was born addicted. Or like, when did you put it together? It's, this is, I hate to bring it back to my dad, but I will. So he, the first time he talks about doing crack, he says it's like Helen Keller. And when she finally like can feel the water and, and then she can like see, it's like, I can see now. And so we've all had these like weird things where it just feels like who you are. And so I was nervous about alcohol. I was nervous about doing drugs specifically because it was illegal. I was like, you know, be a student. I was not, I was not a troublemaker. And I remember my dad, like we came home late, my twin and I, and he, we were really drunk and he screamed. He says, look at you fucking messes. Like, like, you know, he just, there was something like he was cool with it until it showed up in his daughters in his face and just saying like the most brutal shit. And there was such an inconsistency with it. Like you can explore, you can do things, but um, you know, no, like I'm gonna like basically be mean as possible. And I remember they found like a gram container in my room. I had like forgotten it. And instead of getting mad about that, my dad was like, 
so like, how much does this cost? Like, what does it go for <laughs> on the streets? And I was like, $60. And he was like, oh, that's a lot of money. So when does it turn the corner to him getting angry at you? Like, when did, when did he get, did he get angry? Did, when would he get angry at you for like blowing an opportunity? Or when did he get pissed? I remember the only part that I remember where he got pissed is when you were like, Telling him you're going upstate to the cabin and you didn't ask first. That's the only real anger this I remember. Is a, this is a really important book full of a lot of emotional stakes. No. Um, yeah, like I remember I was at a gawker party. I'm not demeaning the importance of no, your book. No, I know. I agree. Okay. It's like the cabin, like the, you know, I, I don't know. I like That's why I'm a little story. embarrassed. Why? Wait, hold on. Why are you embarrassed? I don't know. People have seen some real shit and... I think that that scene was more about the sort of the undoing of our relationship and building it up. But I guess I do find it embarrassing that like the fight is about that. I like went without his permission to a place like it's so paternal uh, paternalistic. I think the interesting thing is that as an, as he was an addict and he was in recovery and he did not recover perfectly. He had lapses here and there when you were at your most fucked up, he was at his most generous. As a viewer, as a reader, as a listener, that's what I got out of it. And like, which was the best thing. I mean, like if my kid showed up high, I think I would do that too. And I get angry in weird spots. Like I, I could really relate to that whole experience. Um, how, how cued into the Coke? I, I'm just curious, like how, if it was the missing piece of your DNA, how much Coke were you doing? So I was, I never had a lot of money. I worked for Vice and uh, I didn't, I wasn't cool enough that people were like doing Coke around me and I could get some, like I always had to be the one that bought it. And I think <laughs> that uh, it was recreational, recreational, recreational until my, uh, my dad died and I had a dealer and then I was like up, re-upping a lot. And then I remember this is, he said, I'm only gonna come to you if you buy two grams, like, you know, for That was here? Days. Yeah. And it was like, I knew he was like flipping me, like, you know, to sort of get, uh, you know, get me to even be more addicted. And by that point I was using cocaine to try and edit things. And it just, it was, it was a nightmare. And I was like, I literally don't have the money. And I think I'm about to enter into something really bad. And so then, I stopped myself and I got sober and I remember I wrote down this guy's number and put it in my underwear drawer when I was sober. Cause I was like, I, I, I can't get it somewhere else. What if I, what if I need it again? Like, you know what I mean? What if I need and it again? What if I need it again? And, and then uh, he texted me a couple of times, like, where you been? <laughs> I was like, I, <laughs> you know, I just had to like sort of block the number, but uh, it was, yeah, he was really, I'm not going to do anything identifying, but I remember I would call him when I was really, really drunk. And he said like, I can't, come to you anymore because like you are going to get me in a lot of trouble like you're a mess and you can only like call me at the start of the night and uh what kind of trouble could he could you have gotten him into at the well, end of the night i mean no like a young white woman in a car that's drunk right like, that's there's a lot of white privilege in that disaster like, yeah and it's just like you know i don't know how much was you know in there with him and yeah i just i yeah he gave me like a stern talking to <laughs> about come here first not last <laughs> but if you came last i'm sure he was happy to see you too no i mean it just depended on if i was a mess or not but yeah well it's um i don't know my favorite thing 
I, my favorite thing in all of it is when you kind of, you wanted your dad's help to, to architect your career in the beginning and he's helping you get internships and, and, and then you make this movie at Vice, click print gun and like 37 million people see it and you know that your dad has some kind of, you know, a little bit of jealousy but a lot of respect and, and, and he said, what did he say? Who knew? We knew. And like, oh my God, like the feeling that I, like my heart exploded because like that's real support. You know what I mean? Of course you know what I mean. Like, why am I asking you if you know what I mean? I remember he once was joking. He's like, do you think you're going to outpace me? And I said, I hope so. Right. And he laughed. <laughs> and so it was just kind of, we were, I mean, he had like 400,000 Twitter followers. He was like literally known on the street because he was at the Times. But he did have this weird thing of like, I've created this and is this going to surpass me um, sort of vibe. That's interesting. And like, I'm sure you thought it's never going to happen. Right. In, in your own mind, because it's happening. You know what I mean? That's the trajectory. And I'm not Nostradamus over here. I'm just an ex-heroin addict who works in a Jewish deli in your apartment. But it's happening. I mean, this last movie is such a gigantic movie, you know? And you know how proud your dad would have been. How jealous would he have been? Very. Right? Yeah. And what, what, that's fun. And, and he would have had fun with it, right? I mean, he, like, there's sending links, like, you know, talking about it. Like he was just the biggest cheerleader. And that's for anybody who's listening that has children, the best thing you can do for kids or for partners or for friends is positive affirmation. You're brilliant. You're special. Like, you know, I grew up not thinking I was the bee's knees and I was like the brightest in the world, but just somebody saying that my thoughts mattered. And that is why I am really confident as a person because somebody helped me gain that confidence. And I was giving a talk to students a couple of years ago and the professor, literally his first question is, why are you so confident? I said, you know, why wouldn't I be? And so I think it's just, you know, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but that's something that is just like, just, just be nice to your kids. And, and then it, I just, I think good things can happen. And in terms of the work, uh, I, I don't have a safety net, right? And if, uh, if I ran out of money, I could live with somebody, but there isn't this person that I could go to. Um, I don't really have parental you know, figures at all. And so there was this compulsive, need another movie, need another movie, need another movie. And uh, I've just like become a little bit of a hoarder because it makes me feel safe and I have the opportunity. Uh, but I do think it's, it's very irregular to make films at this pace, uh, but it was really about putting it together so that I outgrow being somebody's daughter and is really about how can I role model for women who are younger, who are trying to make films and are told repeatedly, you're not a director, you're a PA, you're X, Y, and Z. And I, I hear from so many women that people keep telling me I can't direct things and it's complete bullshit. And so that's been one of the guiding points in my life and getting sober and, you know, having the advice from my dad, but living my, my life in this present way. Now, when you talk about this fire of going from one thing to the next and you, when you describe it, it sounds like addiction a little bit, <laughs> compulsion, whatever, but that's what my sponsor says. What is, what does your sponsor say? Uh, we've just done a lot of work around workaholism and, uh, I th she's gentle with me actually. Um, she's somebody that really cares a lot about work too. 
Um, but as a chronically ill person, she's just, she's just like, are you, are you doing your program? Are you, um, are you going to the doctors? Uh, and so it's just this person that is like, do your inventory. Um, she's just like a really gentle, but really, I, she's kept me sober for sure. So workaholism is something we never talk about on the show. So this is fun. Like when does workaholism, like what's the good side and the bad side? Like when does it get destructive? I have so many thoughts about workaholism. So my dad was a complete workaholic. He worked seven days a week. He didn't go to sleep until one, two, three a.m. He would get up at eight. He didn't really need a lot of sleep. And like, I think two or 4% of the whole population needs under eight hours. Like it's very, very irregular. And uh, so I was modeled, work is going to bring you happiness. Work is gonna give you fulfillment. Work is what we were put on uh, earth to do. Like. He said, we are workers, we are earners, we are strivers. And that was literally in the sort of mandate as uh, in growing up. And then when I hit my niche and I could actually do what I wanted to do and not have a dude named like, you know, Guy or Sam saying, did you do the report, da, da, da. Like the fact that I was able to work for myself, it was like, how am I not gonna work? It's the best thing in the entire world. And I think that um, I've dealt with a lot of consequences as a result of it health-wise, but I think that I've, I've had a bottom with workaholism, but I just don't know how to stop. What's the bottom look like? I was shooting the gymnastics movie and I got really, really sick and I was like, I had lost 20 pounds and I had to go shoot in Florida. And I met up like once a year with my uncle and he saw me and he's like, you look terrible what what's going on he said you need to go to the er and i was not going to cancel the shoot because i had to do the shoot i've never let anybody else direct a shoot and then i went to the er they're like yeah you have to be admitted and so i had to make the phone call about i have to cancel the shoot and it was like it was so physically like i i just i didn't know i felt horrific like i was like i have to be there but i had literally ignored my body disintegrating over six months because i was making a film about women that I thought I could not take a break from. And I did irreversible damage to my lungs by not going to the doctor because I was prioritizing work over me. Over health, right, that's crazy. And with your dad, was he a workaholic when he was a crack addict? I don't remember, like I read the book so long ago, I don't remember. He, like during his <clears throat> party boy days, yeah, he could he could turn out coffee like no one's business. Thousands and thousands, he was constantly working. But then when it got to the crack um, part of the life, no, no, <laughs> that was, he wasn't was, he wasn't coming up with snappy. Uh, no, he had been fired so. and said, you know, it was like you know chasing around the high sort of vibe. I know for me, like when I stopped using. Like I knew, like there, I, I talk about this quote all the time and it's not a major quote, but for me it was a major quote. Howard Stern interviewed Robert Duvall and said, why did you not become an alcoholic and a drug addict like all of your peers? And Robert Duvall said three words, hobbies, hobbies, hobbies. And I was like, that's what I need to do. Like when I was trying to get sober and first I played in a band and like, it was too aggravating. And then my friend Chris was like, we should do a podcast. And I was like, okay. And it became everything to me. And like, I know that everything I put into being a drug addict, I put into this, you know? So how does it feel? It's great. It's, it's great, except that I get spread too thin. I have two kids, I have a full-time job, and, I, and all I want is more mm -hmm. for this. 
And like, and this is nothing. You know what I mean? This is like the it's like a bug in the Amazon of giants. So do you think that workaholism is ultimately our alcoholism or drug addiction showing up and therefore destructive? I don't. I, I think it's a I think it's a two sided coin. I think if if you in your situation, when you didn't put your health first, it becomes destructive. In the situation where you take care of yourself and you're putting out crazy movies and you're doing you're showing up for every aspect of your life, it's an incredible thing. You know, it's like drug addiction is it rarely has a good side to it. Work I mean, what do you think? Like what do you think? I've had people tell me that it'll be my undoing. Like, you know, I think that people get literally burnt out. And um, for Brittany, the turnaround that we had to do was like beyond anything that I'd ever experienced in terms of the getting the movie prepped and ready and fact-checked. And I just, I felt completely crazy. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to meetings cause I just was on this crazy deadline. And I got to the point where I was just like, I just wasn't myself and mental health. I was just like, okay, like I can take a half day off or I'm going to explode. Would you take it? I did. I did it. Cause it was like very close. Um, I like you stroking the, you're stroking the fleece as we go. I always have something soft around, Um, but not a cat. Cause your dad said, don't have a cat in the house. Cause the cat shits in the house. Yeah. No cats. Yeah. I have to cat. I fucking hate my cat. Anyway, let's get back to this. The fact that you would take the half day off is everything, though. That's the whole point. Isn't that the whole point? But I think it had been, like, literally two and a half years since I had taken a break, and I just recently got on vacation with my sober best friend. We were celebrating her sobriety, and I was like, this is fucking great. Like, what do you fucking mean? I'm not going to – I don't want to do, like, my goals this year. I'm going to chill out. I'm going to, like, do stuff, you know, and so – I just, it finally, it was, it was a very, I mean, I'm not going to complain about making a huge movie for Netflix. Get real. But no, please, this this is the show for it. (laughs) If there was ever a show to complain about it, this is the one. I, so workaholism is a tricky subject because I think it brought my dad um, sooner to his death and he did not take care of himself. He Mm. smoked a million cigarettes. He didn't, he got diabetes. He didn't eat correctly because work was always the priority priority. And so there's things that I can model, which are great, but going into an early death is not. And, uh, so it's just, I'm trying to, to emulate this person without falling into the same traps. And I think he would be okay with me saying that. Um, but he didn't prepare for him being an old man. He just knew it wasn't going to exist. And I think that's really hurtful for the things for the people around you. Like I was obliterated and so were my sisters and so was uh, his wife when he died. And uh, I just wish I had told him to stop smoking cigarettes and we never were able to do it. If you had told him, what, do you have, what would have happened? If I had done a real intense effort, maybe something, but I mean, everyone brings up when they talk about him, he's outside the times having a sig. Like I just was so much a part of who he was that I don't even know if you could extrapolate it. Not to mention like the idea of if I only did this, it's like every, you know, how do you feel about like when everybody says everything happens for a reason? Like, how do you feel about that kind of language? That's insane. And doesn't make any sense because you know, not to be a moral uh, relativists, but you know, children get cancer. There's no reason for children to get cancer. And that's like the, 
yeah, I think that the universe is random and we all have, but these like moments on earth to figure it out. Right. Everything happens yeah. and, then, and then we deal with it. You know right. what I mean? And, um, it's fucked up. You know what I mean? And I think I'm getting a lesson and I haven't been to the doctor in like five years or something. You gotta go. I have two kids. You know <laughs> what I mean? Go. I can barely see at this point. No, my, my vision is getting blurry and I'm like, I need to get glasses and blah, blah, blah. I need to go to the doctor. I think you've changed my life. Aaron Lee Carr. Thank you. Um, I have so many things I want to talk about. I just don't know how I want to jump around. One thing that I think is really interesting is, and I, and I didn't hear Dax Shepard talk about this, but it was interesting to me, <laughs> uh, was, you know, Brittany's dad, was, like, versus your dad. Like, and you never talked to Brittany during that whole thing. No, I mean, Brittany doesn't talk to anybody. Um, she was basically Rapunzel in a castle. Uh, I'm still trying, but Do I you think, think she, like, talks to Christina Aguilera here and there? No. That's just a joke. That's just a weird <laughs> pop culture joke. Continue, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that... It was so weird because addiction was so much a part of the story of Britney versus Spears. But one of the tenets of our program is that you don't out people for being an addict until they've done so themselves. And so I was in this incredibly tricky situation where this was obviously a lineage of addiction, but it just, it there was never an ownership of it. So I needed to talk about that. I in the court records, I saw that there was use of uppers and things like that. And Jamie has a historical record of, um, you know, being an alcoholic. And you know, his his life was not pretty. His mother committed suicide at the grave of one of her un, like her children that passed away. Like, you know, I, it his life was about managing with what he had becoming an alcoholic, but then the sort of having control over this entire empire, I'm sure it just got, you know, the power is so intense. And so it's just mixed with his alcoholism. It was just, it was a combustible situation. But the root of it, that's the saddest part is this is the guy's daughter you know, he's her daddy or whatever. And, and like, when we talk about you and your dad, it's like the most beautiful, loving bond. And maybe the conservatorship was set up because he was really scared for his daughter in the first place. You know, at what point does he notice that he's totally lost her and probably lost her forever? But the thing, the difference thing is, Jamie wasn't there when Brittany was going up. She really grew up with her mother and on the road and with Felicia. like. It, right. it wasn't like he just all of a sudden was, you know, he was a good dad and then a good dad and then really cared. He he basically he showed up out of nowhere. Right. right. And so when I think about my relationship with my dad and, you know, there were moments where I was a crazy town USA and there was never like, let's put you in conservatorship. Like I didn't have any, you know, shackles to my name, but, you know, it was like make your own decisions and, you know, it just it felt like she was targeted because she was Britney Spears. Absolutely, well, she was targeted because she, she was Britney Spears because yeah. she was so so successful and, and an icon and, and living in the public eye in a way that was uns, unseeming to her father or to the public, you know? There was a lot of like craziness and you left a lot of it out of the movie. And that is that because you're a Britney fan? It didn't feel right when she has never talked about it. It felt like it was a further exploitative moment that 
you know, I think the story is equal about addiction and mental health and mental health is always the thing that's discussed. And you'll see like, you know, not to give myself credit, we actually do mention Adderall and talk about it. And I don't think the other films do. No, um, I, lo I love those sections. And it was also like, it's almost Elvis Presley, like, you know, jacking her up so she can be able to be this performer. And um, it's very much like a princess in a castle who, who's locked away. And, um, like just like my living situation. It's just like it's like uh, totally. That's exactly what I was thinking. The, if you, I have to take a picture of the view so the Dopey Nation can see the splendor that is New York City, because like it's really really beautiful. Um, when did it get? When did you have the idea of Britney? Yeah. It's. I mean, basically in spring of 2019, there were all these rumors floating around that. Brittany was in a mental health facility against her will. And it, it just like, it was just this huge mystery of what's going on with Britney Spears. And I was finishing How to Fix a Drug Scandal. And I, I wanna go for the moon. I wanna, I wanna do things that people haven't solved before. And I felt ready at that point in my career. And so I was like, you know, they had been, Netflix had been pitched Britney Spears like 13 times or something like that. But I was like, I'm the person to do this. I'm gonna do this. Uh, you know, will you buy in? And I think that it was incredibly naive. And I look back at that, that girl in the park being like, I'm gonna solve it. And, you know, it is unthinkable as we sit here today. And when this, you know, goes on the podcast, Britney Spears is out of the conservatorship. When I started, we knew nothing about how she felt about it. So it's been like incredible to watch, but it's also like, you know, they, the, her team knew that a, a Netflix documentary was being made. They, they said, you know, this is not the right time for it, da, da, da. And so I hope to think in a, the teeniest, teeniest little way, it's like we kind of started the specter of you're being watched, not just by the court, but also by these institutions that are going to figure out what's going on. Like somebody cares. Like somebody takes an interest in your uh, injustice. Like, like you're, you're being fucked, but I care kind of thing. And Free Britney, the movement had been caring for decade. Um, but I think it's, it's like the, the megaphone that streamers have is, you know, pretty incredible. Well, I love that it kind of bookended her coming out of the whole thing, right. you know, and, and like that, the New York Times one, like, kind of brought awareness to me that it was happening. And then your movie comes out and the conservatorship ends. And I was like, that's so nice. You know what I mean? Like poor Britney, you know what? I just hope I, that was the one thing that Dax said, like, he was like, I just don't want some handsome man to take her money or something. Uh, and that, do, you, do you recall that? Yeah, I thought that was kind of like, and listen, I want to love Dax. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, I want to see Britney, like, make great music and perform and talk to the world and have a nice life. You know what I mean? I'm not the biggest Britney Spears fan. Yes, you are. I have seen the posters in your house, sir. Don't lie to me. I'm just not. I mean, like, I, I think she's... I guess uh, that would be creepy. Well, it would, yeah, then people would turn on me that I have Britney Spears posters in my house. But I like, I like her songs, and I think she's great, and I think your movie's great. And I think, most importantly, I think it's great that, she, that she's free. Now, what was your bottom in addiction i love this is like my the, the bingo this is your britney, life. Yeah. Brittany, britney dad bingo. Yeah. aaron my life my bottom was probably i would do this thing where after my dad died i would invite people over and they would bring alcohol and we would party all night and 
I remember, um, you know, it just was this incredibly, one of those nights that was never going to end. And it was really the morning and I couldn't come down. And so the guy, uh, one of the guys there offered me a, a Zanny bar and I still wasn't coming down, still wasn't coming down. Did you down. call it a Zanny bar back then? I think, I nice. don't know. I love that. Uh, and so then it wasn't working. So I said, I need a, another one and I need another one. And so I ended up like, I, I was not a pills person because my mom uh, is was, is, I don't know, addicted to uh, prescription narcotics and, you know, had a really horrifically tough life as a result. And, but in this moment, my judgment was not there. And I had tons of alcohol on board, uh, tons of cocaine, and then mixed with Xanax. And then nobody could wake me up um, the next day. And I had literally slept through an entire day. And Yuna found me and called my sister. Yuna's my roommate, my best friend. And, you know, my sister did a cognition test of like, do I know who's president? Do I know what year it was? And I, I failed half of it and I didn't have health insurance at the time. And so she was this, she did not know what to do. And, uh, she just wrote me, she said, if you continue, you're going to die. And, uh, my sister had gone through so much, you know, you know, she's my heart and she'd gone through so much. And I was like, am I going to continue to torture this person? Uh, for the rest of my life. And I think that I was so shaken and scared because that hadn't happened to me before. And that I still drank after that and used, but not soon thereafter was the moment where I was like, I'm gonna take a break for a month again and see if I feel better. And that's what led to me having six years. And did, uh, did Megan ever have, and Megan was your twin sister. Did she ever have any issues with drugs or alcohol? Can't say. That's fair. Um, when you came out, that's a stupid question. Forgive me. When you, when you, when she finds you and you're debilitated, does she talk to you? Like our parents were this and you're going down this road. Are you not aware of this? Like, did she put the genetic component together in talking to you about it? I'd have to look back at the email but I think, I think she really kept it in the moment of like, I'm afraid I'm gonna lose you. And it, just, it was just crushing. And I had been high during my dad's funeral, during the wake, um, you know, during you know, putting stuff out. Uh, I just had all these moments where I could not say no and I was using and this like, it just, it felt like I was gonna tip over to something. But that's what's sort of unique as I listen to the podcast. It's like, I, you know, my story is not unique, but the fact that I didn't tip over until, and to the huge destruction, right? I had lost my job and I, you know, we, I gotten in fights and things like that, but it's not like, it, it's not like something, an unforgivable thing happened. And I think that is what is interesting about that your whole life, doesn't need to go to shit and for you to say this is enough and I wrote the book saying like it was going downhill and I was able to pull it back and it was because my dad was sober my mom was an addict I saw exactly what was going to happen and so then I got when I got sober I was still able to be trusted with money and with you know making things and things like that and so it really was the pulling it back from the brink I think was the real, the real truth there. Totally, totally. And, and every film you've made, you've made in a program of recovery. 
And we got sober in the same month of the same year. So yeah, that, that's cool. I don't know what day I've claimed August 13th. It was around there um, in 2015. And it's just so funny. Like when you start, you don't know that you're going to keep going. You know what I mean? And like, did your dad take you to your first 12 step meeting? Like when did that happen? He had taken me to them before. He wanted me to join him for open meetings. You can see over there, I sleep with a big book next to my bed. I have it there. I have a, at home, I have all of my, um, basically my coins like in, like basically hung up in this thing that shows like six months, year, two, three, four. And so every day I look at it and I have a picture of me and my sisters in it. And uh, yeah, like it, when I got that, it was, just, I was like, oh my God, I have enough chips to like fill this bad boy out and I can't wait to keep adding to it. Um, so it just, I forget what the question was. <laughs> I don't remember the question either. I, the, I'll, I'll move on though. Cause you have this amazing, what, do you remember the question, Kaylee? The, I, what was the question? Did you, you bought me the, the coin thing, right? Beautiful. Yeah. I'll take a picture of it. I think the question was, it doesn't matter. We'll move on from that question. The next question is, um, have you always been so organized and curatorial and, and able to put things where they go so well? Has it always come naturally to you? No, I was a very average student in high school, average student in college. Uh, is curatorial and, a word? Yeah. All right, good. And I think that when I got sober, literally every year I've gotten smarter, which has been weird, um, watching Skillshare uh, classes, looking at YouTube, reading books, uh, watching movies, writing things down. Like I'm constantly moving my brain forward. And it really stemmed from in 2015, I was freelancing, I was sober, and I had a development deal, but I needed to, I needed to make, turn it into something so I could actually earn income. And I said, like, I was just sort of wandering around and I was like, okay, what you have to do is you're gonna account for every hour and the television is not gonna go on. You have a lunch break, but from this to this, you sit at the computer, you look for ideas. And then I would put, I had these, um, you could put whiteboard, uh, like uh, on the actual walls, wallpaper. And I put all the different things that I was following and tracking. And so when I felt like putting on Gilmore Girls or you know, doing something, I was like, okay, I have to keep moving towards that. And then I put up my goals. And so there was this constant visual reinforcement of what are you doing? What steps are you taking? And also putting into micro steps so that it wasn't these big grandiose things, but it was like, call this person, strike it off. Ask this person about this, getting in touch. And uh, I like, you know, now I have like specialty notebooks and all this stuff. And I don't know, I love, I, I, I love organization. I love that. It's a total like, I mean, look at me. Like I, I, I brought chaos to your order. Um, I, I could really use like more organizational tools. And like, listen, my interviews are usually very organized and I'm playing bingo with you. Did, you. you did so much research. You're, this is the most research anybody has ever done. Okay. Give yourself some fucking credit, sir. I don't know why I'm all over the place. I want to go back to Brittany now. I have another Brittany <laughs> fucking question. Do you think she'd be happy with it? I think that there are times that in the movie that would be too hard for her to watch. Do you think she watched it? I don't think so. I think that she knew that 
it showed her at her brightest in moments. I made it with her in mind uh, for her watching it and having an experience that was not traumatic. But I think she's been so traumatized by all of the media and interviews and all that's been done. Like, I just don't know if she could see it. So it was just my goal that if she ever feels ready to watch it, she can and she will. And it won't be the same images again and again and again. And I think, you know, I, there was this whole question of like, why did I put myself in the movie? And, you know, we want to see things through personal journeys. Like I couldn't get to her and everyone has a problem with like female documentarians, which I think is so fucking sexist. I really liked you in the movie. And it was just like- I liked you in the movie because it was like, I'm making this movie. I'm, I'm giving you what I've discovered. I'm taking you on my journey to making this movie with, what was the other woman's name? Jenny. With Jenny. And the two of you explaining what you were doing, I like that. I like that technique. I just, I, there's always this thing that like women be asking for attention. And I think Women that, do be asking for attention <laughs> all the time. So do men. I know. Uh, it's people be asking and, for attention. You know, so I think that it was this sort of very structured choice, but I was just kind of like vaguely horrified by some of the reactions. Not that you, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't care what people think, but it was like, there's so many people in my life that are men that put themselves in movies that aren't in the same, like under the same amount of scrutiny. So in this way, it was just like, you know, I mean, I just, I don't care. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Totally, are you gonna do it again? My mentor, Sheila Nevin, said not to. Why? <laughs> She's like, you are behind the scenes talent. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if it's like basically Britney was so special to me because I cared about her so much. And I think if there was a real reason to do it, if I come across another real reason to do it, then I will. Okay, so the reason you did it in that, in this film, is because you felt so close to her and you needed the audience to know that you were kind of carrying a flag for her. Well, it was like in parallel to the audience. You knew stuff as I knew stuff. And so that was the sort of the structure choice. And you become a part of the Free Britney movement in a way, in the film. It's interesting because there was always this sort of nervousness about using Free Britney. And I was even like, we weren't sure if we could really use it. And people were like, why don't you use the, the hashtag Free Britney? Like I literally, people asked me about it. In what and, way would you have used it? I mean, just when I was like, you know, Marketing? reporting on it. Um, but, you know, I think it has now been seen that the Free Britney movement was entirely right. And they were the ones that were really um, sort of supporting it. The, the New York Times film does a good job of showing the movement. And to me, that film showed the movement. I was not going to make another film that did a duplicate argument. So it's, yeah, I think it, it's, there's, there was so many more politics in making this movie, like in making How to Fix a Drug Scandal. It was just like, I knew what to do. You, you get this, there's Luke, there's doing the drugs at work. Like it, it all sort of made sense to me. I love that movie. And it was just, no one was like, you know, you have to use this hashtag, <laughs> like, you know. I just loved watching the lady take the drugs, like, and lie. <laughs> like that was really up my alley. Um, but the, the free Britney hashtag, it's just like, you kind of wanted to just keep yourself separate from it, I think. You, you wanted to be your own autonomous thing, although, I'm sure you've become this huge hero to the Free Britney movement. I wouldn't say that. A folk hero. <laughs> I don't know. I get the I get the coolest, kindest, most beautiful messages. Um, and I, I had somebody in my life that gave them the courage to leave an abusive partner. And um, it's so wild to see how much change and emotional work movies can do. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it opens doors. It changes people. And that, I mean, that movie... 
I love you now die was so painful. Oh my God. My wife loves movies like that. Like she didn't, she knew Britney versus Spears and she watched every one of your movies, but she doesn't pay attention to who makes the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. And then I was going down the list. She was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And she's like, she's hooked on these kinds of very damaging, sad, fucked up stories. And I'm welcome to my brain. I'm like, I can't handle it. It's funny. Cause I do dopey, yeah. which is like the idea was the worst shit that ever happened to you. But in a funny way, like that was, that was the blueprint and these movies it's, it's painful. It's beautiful. Like just the way you shot the ocean in that movie was so beautiful and the beach and, um, and the way you use their communication, it was like, holy shit. It's also just scary to imagine when you're gone, somebody going through your texts, right? Isn't right? that just like, it, like it's fucked up. It's like, Ooh. <laughs> um, how involved in your recovery are you on it? I know you have coins and I know you have the big book and I know you how, like, how are, do you have sponsees? Like, do you, how often do you talk to your sponsor? When's the last time you went to a meeting? It's none of my business, but I'm just curious. So in my life, I've worked a really terrible program and I've worked a really good program and it tends to oscillate. I would say that the, the biggest thing I have going for me is like, I am very close to my sober friends. It's not like a, Hey, see you at a meeting. Like I, I share, um, check-in intimacies, like the sober people in my life are, um, like a created family. I would say that zoom meetings are tough. I go to them. I listen to them. I go to midnight. Uh, sometimes I feel on like zoom or in person, no on zoom. Cause I'm in sweet, sweet, different state. And, uh, I've, I've had a lot of trouble, honestly, with sponsees. Um, I think that there's a lot of relapse that happens and I feel really scared about having a sponsee because my schedule is very, really tough. Grueling. And, and I just like, you know, you know, sponsees need consistency. And I think that I have felt like I'm not enough and I'm not there enough to really be that, that hold that position of power in somebody's life. And there's also this weird thing that I, I think is okay to bring up where sometimes people would get close to me because I, what I do for a living. That's the next question. And I was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't mix these worlds, you know? The star fuckery in... And, like, I'm a documentary filmmaker in Brooklyn. Like, and so it's just, but I, in our family, we call Somehow it... Somehow you glamorized and de-glamorized <laughs> that in the one phrase. It's like, it's like the highest of the highs and you made it the lowest of the lows. <clears throat> my, my, in my group, we call it being grabby. And it's like people would reach out to me just for like favors and to, you know, that kind of stuff and asking me career advice. And I, I mentor as a matter of practice with people that work with me. Um, but it just got into a couple of spots where it was like, I can't talk to you about your career. Like we got it. Are you going to meetings? Are you, you know, doing X, Y, and Z? And so, yeah, that, that was just, it's just been a little weird as I'm on the precipice of this, like kind of being an online person, like public person, Right. it's, it's happened. But for most part, like, obviously, like I'm just one of many and, uh, just like, I just, I love it. And I literally stayed sober because this guy, Chris, I'm not going to mention his other initial. He, he kind of like forced me to do the coffee commitment at a, at a meeting in Williamsburg. And I said, no, I got this thing. And he's like, no, 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 you're doing it. And I did it for like a year straight. And that's what like kept me around. Right. Right. I mean, the old adage and like our audience is like some are 12 step people, some are using, some are hate 12 step shit. Like sometimes I like, I don't, I mean, I'm a 12 step person and 
I know that like this week, I think I went to one meeting mm-hmm. and I'm not great. You know but what this, I mean? Isn't this sort of a meeting? In some ways it is. Is it? Yeah. We're also talking about work. What up? Da da. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting we're getting we're getting away with with both things. But I yeah. mean like it, we are two alcoholics talking about recovery for sure. Um there was a thing I used to hear which is like every time there's a relapse I ask the same questions. Are you working the steps? Do you have a sponsor? Do you have a sponsee? Like does that fucking plague you at all? I had this really disturbing experience where I was working with a therapist and I, I think I'm paraphrasing but she basically like said if we stopped working together that I would relapse. And I was four years sober at the time. Right. And I thought how disempowering that is. And how somebody, could even how could that even happen? Like maybe she said it in a different way and I just in my memory grabbed onto that. But it was like I'm a person that runs multiple movies, multiple teams, like I my sobriety is in me. It's not in this relationship with this other person who's been helping me through it. And so, yeah, I just think that it's, it's just, it's a part, it's like the, the real backbone of my life, but sometimes I really take it for granted, but I also buy into that, you know, a, the programmatic bullshit of like, if this person is a dry drunk, they're going to use again. They get you on that. Like if I, I, somebody reached out to me who's sober and I said, do you go to meetings? And the person was like, no, it never really connected in my brain. I was like, this is bad, you're gonna use, da, da, da. And it's like, that's like just, that's the program doing that to me. Right, it's the cult. It's the dogma of the cult, absolutely. But it also it also works. Like that's the, it's like, I, I'm with you on both, both sides of that thing. What happened with the therapist? Yeah, I mean, it was done. You were done with that, yeah. Yeah. And when you describe that, it reminds me of Brittany. Because it's like, Brittany ran everything. And yet everyone was like, you can't run anything. Mm -hmm. So did you see yourself in her at all? No, I'm just a goblin that's trying to talk to people on the horn. No, (laughs) I think that, I mean, she was just so watched. I have so much more autonomy and like my, the decisions I make. Uh, Yeah, I think that negotiating sobriety in a time of trying to be as ambitious as possible, when you're told if you put anything else in front of your sobriety, you're gonna use. And I had to find the right sponsor, the right people. It's right. like, I, um, I'm i not gonna spend a year having you tell me how to brush my teeth. That's right. not gonna work for me. Like right. I need to, I'm, I'm going to eat cake, I'm gonna go to meetings, but I'm also gonna work. I'm gonna work and I'm gonna work. But that's also not the way they had set up the fellowship in the first place. You know what I mean? That yeah. you're not allowed to eat cake or you're not allowed to do this. No, but there's always this thing of like, you got to like lay in your jammies for a year. And I know. You, they, you stay on first step for a year. Well, Some it's, people it's also too. like, it's dangerous because I, I think it's like, you know, don't go to bars, but also get back to your life. And like, once you are put on hiatus for years of your life, like it's going to be hard to reintegrate and like do that job. You, we have to try, if we can, if we're ready, to do both things. Well, what about that whole God's will versus your will and your ambition? Like, did you ever have that issue in your head? Like, like I have that issue all the time where, where everyone's like, and I, I struggle with the dogma built into it. And they're like, not your will, but God's will. And I'm like, well, I want this to happen and I want to work harder and I want to make Dopey bigger. And I do, I'm like crazy about it. And, and As you should be, that's the whole point. But sometimes I wonder if like, am I taking back my will? Am I not no, in the protocol? you're not. That's like, I think that you can be a good 
a sober person, a good dad, but also somebody that is trying to build something bigger. And it, that, that is the lie that we tell ourselves. And if you or I get to a point where it's like continuous thoughts of relapse because we're not sleeping, not doing stuff, that's a different that's story. That's a different story. But it's like, we can't, I, in my personal opinion, I think that part of the program is, is wrong. It's potentially harmful. Yeah, and I just, I just see people having a hard time getting back into their professional lives. The, the idea is to have the best life you can. And if you want to be a fucking uh, voracious filmmaker or incredibly crazy podcaster, you go for Hell it. Yeah. Now, the, the currency of Dopey has always been the Dopey story. And somebody sent in a Dopey story. This is an OG dope by the name of Jed Shredwards, he calls himself. Um, and so we're gonna listen to his story and then maybe if you wanna come with a dopey story, feel free, but this is Jed. Are you ready for yep, Jed? I'm ready. All right, cool. What's up, Dave? Um, this is Jed Shred, uh, which is not my real name, but my stupid uh, Facebook alias. Uh, not to be confused with Jed from Church and Other Drugs. Uh, that tends to happen from time to time in the dopey nation. Um, but anyway, I was responding to your uh, sort of recent thirsty pleas for, for voicemails to be sent in. And so uh, I thought I might uh, tell a little story about nitrous uh, from my using days. Um, so this was probably about three or four years ago. I uh, had nothing to do one day, middle of winter, and I uh, decided to go to a nearby smoke shop and pick up a bunch of uh, Whippet canisters. And uh, I had this little device, um, this little metal device that you put the canisters into and you... Uh, which cracks them open so you can fill up uh, balloons with the nitrous. Um, and so I'm filling up balloons. And for those of you that don't know, uh, nitrous is extremely cold. The gas is extremely, extremely cold. Um, and so I'm filling up balloons, and one of these balloons... Uh, slips off the end of this metal cracking device as I'm, uh, as I'm filling up, filling it up and nitrous just starts spraying everywhere. Uh, it's spraying all over my hand. It's spraying all over the metal cracking device that is being held in my hand. And so, uh, of course the metal of this thing starts getting frozen to my hand um, and I'm watching this happen in horror and the skin where the metal is freezing to my hand is all turning like white as a sheet, looks like a gnarly burn and it feels like a really bad burn. Um, and so my immediate <laughs> terrible instinct is to, uh, try and lick my hand where it's being frozen to the metal to separate it uh, which of course uh, 
only results in my tongue getting frozen to the metal like the kid in the fucking uh, Christmas story, if you guys have seen that movie, when the kid freezes his, licks the flagpole in the middle of winter and his tongue gets stuck to it. Um, so I'm sitting there, my hand frozen to this metal, my tongue frozen to the, to the metal. I decide I have to rip my tongue off of it, um, which I did, and it you know took some skin with it. My tongue starts bleeding. I run into the bathroom, grab some tissues, shove them in my mouth to try and manage the bleeding of my tongue. Um, the uh, once the sort of metal in my hand had like warmed up enough, so it wasn't still frozen. Uh, I I ripped off the uh, as gently as I could, tried to rip off this this cracking device. Um, from my hand and of course that was a big nasty uh burn wound basically um and I you know I wasn't gonna stop doing the nitrous um you know but I needed to figure out a way to uh prevent that same thing from happening again um so uh of course, I, I, I decide to uh, put on winter gloves and just continue this process uh, and continue huffing and getting high on the nitrous until I ran out um, because because I am an addict and an alcoholic. I, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't stop using despite consequences. Um, and I had a nice burn blister on my hand for about the next month or so. Um, yeah, anyway, I did eventually stop using because of consequences Got when I got into recovery. Um, been sober about a little, probably 14, 15 months now. Been off of booze, which was my, probably the biggest problem for me. Been off of booze for about two years. Um, and Dopey's been a big part of that and the Dopey Nation a uh, quick plug is that I do, uh, I um, sort of run and lead some of the meetings for the Recovery Dharma group that, um, this particular group that is somewhat affiliated with the Dopey Nation. Um, and if you're interested in checking out those meetings, uh, I usually post, they're on Zoom on Mondays, I usually post a reminder in the Dopey Nation group every Monday um, for those, or you can just message me on Facebook. But uh, yeah, anyway, uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. There he is, Jed Shredwards. What do you think about the nitrous story? But what happened to his tongue? It bled. <laughs> it bled. Like, was there anything like that was absolutely because he talks about his hand being fucked up? I'm like, what about your mouth? Like, dude, scabbed uh, scabs on the tongue. You never hear about that. It's horrible. Hey, do you have any nitrous experience? Thank you for asking. I decline. Okay. And do you have a dopey story you might want to share? <laughs> I can't follow the nitrous. Why not? I just <laughs> no. I mean, I, that's for next time. I I shared a lot about. My weird little small world, but also like I love that we talk so much about recovery in it. No, of course. I mean, like just listening to Jed, like I know that people will get a lot out of 
who you are and sharing what you went through and how you keep it going now. Like, I think that's my favorite thing to hear. And I'm usually so much more focused. I think I'm just like in, in, in awe of your incredible, you know, veracity. You know, I think I, you're, I think your organization somehow made me more <laughs> scattered sitting with you. Is that possible? I just, I've been told, and I'm like, I'm literally five foot four. I have, you know, brown hair. I'm sort of unsuspecting, but I consistently get the feedback that I make people really nervous. I was, and it's not a physical thing. It's like an emotional no, thing. No, I was scared you were going to like fuck me up or something. <laughs> no, I was nervous, but I was nervous because of your, I'm so organizationally crippled and you're so like alpha organized, but I did cover a lot of ground. Yeah, you did. What we, up? Did, we did cover a lot of ground. And I know that you listened to the Kat Marnell episode of, of Dopey, yeah. which was uh, the one of the most controversial episodes of Dopey. Yes. You know, she she blocked me, stopped following me, and like she tweeted horrible things about me because she was con because the Dopey Nation didn't love her. Be because she was not that vested in recovery or addiction when she came on the <laughs> but show. But that's what's so great about I her. Know. She's great. And her book is, the first book is like incredible. Incredible yes. book. Yes, it is. Funny as shit. And I defended her all over the like place. It is like dopey. Like it really is. It is a, like a tribute to the ill wills and the horrific, but also the hysterical. Oh, her voice. So funny. But, oh, I forgot to say, Jed, by getting a voicemail on the show, gets a free pair of dopey socks, and I brought you Yay. a pair of dopey socks, too. So we are going to leave you alone because you have a million things to do, <laughs> but thank you so much for having us. And thank you. So that was Erin Lee Carr. I would love to hear what you guys uh, think. Did you watch her movies? Do you have drug stories you want to share? Have you ever bought fucking Coke in Williamsburg? Send an email, send a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Make it funny, make it around five minutes, but most of all, make it dopey. And I love talking to Aaron Lee Carr. I think I left my copy of her book in her apartment, which just, that's not a good look. That's too bad. But I wanted to, there was a list in the back of her book from her father. And the list is called Things I Learned from David Carr. And I want this, this to be like a list of things that I learned from David Carr. And I want it to be a list that the audience learns from David Carr because it's such a good list. So I'm just going to read that. And then we're going to say goodbye. It's going to be the end of the show. You ready? Here we go. One, listen when you enter a room. I'm not going to number them. Listen when you enter a room. Don't buy into your myth. Don't be the first one to talk. But if you do talk first, say something smart. Speak and then stop. Don't stutter or mumble. Be strong in what you have to say. Be defiant. You have to work the phones. Call people. Don't rely on emails. Ask questions, but ask the right questions. Ask people what mistakes they've made so you can get their shortcuts. Know when enough is enough. That's a good one. Make eye contact with as many people as possible. Don't be shitty in relationships. Oh, don't be in shitty relationships because you are tired of being alone. Be grateful for the things you have in this life. You are lucky. Practice patience, even though it's one of the hardest things to master. Failure is a part of the process, maybe the most important part. Alcohol is not a necessary component of life. Street hot dogs are not your friend. Remind yourself that nobody said this would be easy. If more negative things come out of your mouth than positive, then Houston, we have a problem. We contain multitudes. Always love, which is some kind of reference to the band Nada Surf, 
Have a dance move and don't be afraid to rock it. I have no dance moves. Don't go home just because you are tired. I always do that. Don't take credit for work that is not yours. If your boss does this, take note. Be generous with praise and be specific in that praise. That line was killer. Cats are terrible. They poop in your house. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Do the next right thing. Our dogs are us, only cuter. And finally, you are loved and you belong to me, the world, and yourself. I love that list. I'm super angry at myself for not bringing that up with Erin Lee Carr. I would have loved to hear her take on that list. Maybe if she comes on the show again, we could go over the list. And I knew that this list could come in handy for me. And maybe it can come in handy for you. I'm going to print it out. I'm going to post it. Somewhere in the doposphere, or maybe I'm going to put it on my fridge. Maybe I'll whiteboard the list. I got one. My new list is got to put up my whiteboard that I bought two years ago. Got to get organized. Got to follow the path. And one last time, if you are an established or an aspiring podcaster, you should totally try Zencaster. They hook it up. They make it easy to connect with your guests. They give you totally studio quality sound, HD video recording, secured cloud backups, and automatically generated transcripts. It's like heaven, man. Check it out for 30% off by using the promo code DOPEYPODCAST at Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com. So thank you again, Aaron Lee Carr. I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.